Hi, this is Sally Helgeson, author of How Women Rise, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best. Do you ever wonder why the proportion of women in leadership positions in business lags behind the general population percentage? My guest, Sally Helgeson, and her co-author, Marshall Goldsmith, explored this question and wrote about 12 habits that women can change in their book, How Women Rise. Now, other obstacles must be overcome, and these changes won't make the ultimate transformations in a week or a month, but as you'll hear, they are a roadmap and make a profound difference in the lives of women business leaders and their colleagues. Listen in, whether you're a woman on the rise or a man who wants all of his colleagues to have the opportunity to contribute their best at work. I'm so glad you're here. Hi, this is Bill Ringel, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock their growth potential. Joining me today is Sally Helgeson. Sally focuses on women's leadership. Her mission over the past 30 years has been to help women leaders around the world recognize, articulate, and act on their greatest strengths. She also works with senior teams seeking to build more inclusive cultures. Sally's recent book, How Women Rise, explores the specific habits most likely to get in women's way as they seek advancement and it offers powerful practices to help women realize their full potential. When she's not working to develop women leaders or giving keynote presentations, she lives and works in Chatham, New York. Welcome, Sally. Thank you, Bill. It's wonderful to be here. Sally, would you tell me something about yourself that most people who've known you professionally wouldn't know? Uh, That I'm a big basketball fan. I uh, went to Michigan State. I was a pre-Magic Johnson era, and I love March Madness, and I love the NBA finals parts of the season. I really schedule it in, and I'm a big fan. I'm a huge tennis fan, and I always build things around the major Grand Slam tournament. (laughs) I know what you mean. Yeah, exactly. It's important. It's important to keep those things in our lives. I agree. And when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? You know, I was really influenced and inspired by the nuns at the Catholic school I went to. I was very fortunate to have a wonderful uh, school experience. And I love the independence and the intellectual curiosity of the nuns at our school and their devotion to, as they would put it, their girls, because it was a, a, a Catholic girls' school. So that they really shaped a lot of my behavior and my aspirations when I was young. Not that I became a nun, but, uh, but they were very influential in my life. Do you remember one in particular? Yes, I do. Sister Mary Lawrence, who was our advanced English teacher and who also taught Latin and who was kind of crabby and scared you uh, and was sort of typically, you know, stereotypically nun-like in that way. But she was absolutely brilliant. And uh, she, she really aspired to give the girls in her classes a sense of understanding of the world. Uh, as opposed to our the small city in which we live, only being focused on that. And that really served me well because my work has taken me all around the world over and over and over again. So it was a parochial school that wasn't provincial. That's <laughs> correct. wasn't parochial in that sense. It was, it was very much open to the world, yes. 
And what's one way that she did that to help you look at a broader picture of the world and look beyond the boundaries of your school? Well, she would always put things in an historical context for us. And she would always, you know, in terms of if you were talking about, a, a say, a writer's uh, beliefs, she would talk about how those beliefs were really shaped by the society that the writer uh, lived in. And I think that's pretty unusual. And to do that at, at, a, at a fairly high level uh, for high school students. So she made us curious about and very open to other kinds of cultures. And uh, it's not probably how people often think of nuns teaching in Catholic girls' schools, but it was certainly my experience. And as you think about and reflect on your work today, what inspires or guides the direction of your work these days? These days, my work is inspired and guided by the women and increasingly the men in the audiences that I speak to, whether I'm delivering keynotes, moderating panels, or leading workshops. I have the opportunity to work with a huge range and variety of people around the world who are really seeking to refine and hone their leadership skills, to lead their organizations in a positive direction, to form meaningful relationships, but also leverage those relationships in order to both achieve their own career objectives, but also to, um, to put their values into place. When somebody is thinking of bringing in a keynote speaker and they ultimately choose you, what's one or two of the issues that they're struggling with in their organization that you're able to help them with? Number one, they're struggling to develop their women leaders so that they can move into much more senior positions. Women often get sort of stuck at a maybe senior VP level, uh, and there's a smaller pool available for the top level. So organizations will bring me in to help them develop women for senior leadership positions. The other reason organizations bring me in is to, when they're looking to develop more inclusive cultures, that will help not just women, but all kinds of diverse people really thrive and realize their greatest potential. I've done a lot of work, a book I wrote early on was called The Web of Inclusion, a new architecture for building great organizations. First time the word inclusion was used in a business context. So that's also been a focus of my work and when people will bring me in. What's a symptom that companies recognize that says that they're not being inclusive enough. Yeah, disengagement. Disengagement, and I think this is one of the reasons that, that, that we live in a time that I feel really hopeful about organizations, despite you know, a lot of challenges out there. I think there's ever more recognition that engagement is key. Let me give you an example. I did some work a number of years ago with one of the world's largest mining companies. Uh, it was Australia-based. Now, that doesn't sound like a likely candidate for an enormous inclusion initiative, but that organization had done an employee, global employee engagement survey. And what they discovered was not just that people felt engaged or disengaged based upon whether they perceived that their voice was actively heard by their immediate supervisor or boss, but 
that this was a factor that across the board was correlated to the safety of the different sites. So that gave them a big incentive to want to address the uh, uh, issue of engagement. When they could see that it was correlated to safety, they knew they had to get serious. So I worked with them for a fascinating series of engagements to try to look at moving the culture in a direction of greater inclusion. Looking back on that work, what was one of the key things that they needed to adopt into their culture in order to make that difference? What they needed to adopt into their culture was that that an ability to translate the message that employee engagement and inclusion were important down from the most senior level, where there was big buy-in about it, to the level of uh, supervisory or on-site, where there was often much less buy-in for it. And one of the things that they discovered from that is that they were hiring often for the wrong skills. They were hiring for engineering talent, uh, which was important, uh, but they needed to hire for people skills. And so they needed to con- consider both of those things. And that as long as their, uh, uh, their employee template was, let's find the best engineers, they were not going to reach that goal of inclusion, not saying that uh, engineers aren't inclusive, Uh, in their leadership style, but since they weren't even considering what the skills people had were in terms of engaging other people uh, when they hired or promoted them, uh, they weren't getting the outcomes they wanted. So now we're going to do a contrast from the depth of mining to how women rise. Yes. What's the core message of your book? The core message of our book is that in an environment where, yes, For women, there are cultural and structural challenges. The most powerful way to create a a career path that is satisfying, engaging, and rewarding, and sustainable over time, is to look at, at what you can control, what lies within your control. And what lies within your control is always going to be your own habits and behaviors. So it is really important for women who feel in any way stuck or stymied in their careers to not just do a critique of what the organization could do, but also look to themselves. And, and, you know, Bill, it's very common that behaviors that serve you well early in your career uh, can get in your way as you seek to rise. So what we're, what we're trying to do in How Women Rise is identify those behaviors and say to women, if, if you feel stuck, you might think about addressing some of these habits, some of these behaviors. They may have served you in the past. They may not be serving you now or will not serve you in the future. Uh, and it is within your control to address them. Let me give the full title of the book altogether, How Women Rise, Break the 12 Habits Holding You Back from Your Next Raise, Promotion, or Job. In that context, Sally, you give people, you and Marshall give people the kind of an inventory to assess themselves and be able to see, you know, am I falling prey to this bad habit? If so, here are some ways to change it. Is that in essence what your intent was when you set out to uh, publish the book? That is very much what the intent was, because you mentioned Marshall. Marshall Goldsmith is my co-author on this book. Marshall had written a 
phenomenally successful book called What Got You Here Won't Get You There, about the behaviors and habits that get in the way of successful people. It did not seem to me, and increasingly to Marshall, that all those habits necessarily were habits that were problematic for women. So we wanted to look at what are those habits and behaviors that are most likely to get in women's ways as they seek to rise, diagnose them, lay them out so people can identify with them. Oh, yes, I do that. Oh, yes, this is this in this assumption informs my thinking, and then give them a template for making positive behavioral change that's long-lasting and sustainable over time. So the first habit listed is, to break, is reluctance to claim your achievements. Why is this one so important? It's really important because women are often, for very good reasons, reluctant to use the I voice when claiming their achievements. Women can be um, sort of proactively trying to ward off the charge of being ambitious, aggressive, or all about myself for saying things that men would never be tagged uh, as, as overambitious for saying. Women often are prohibited from that. So what we uh, both have observed, Marshall and I, is that women often routinely over-assign success for their credits to their team, their partners, their boss, their organization, the person who handed them their coffee that morning at the uh, coffee shop they went to, whoever it is, um, because they are so fearful of being seen as, uh, as self-promoting or arrogant. Um, and this is a legitimate fear. Let's give listeners an actual example of how someone who's no who's broken that habit responds when somebody praises their work. It, oh boy! <laughs> let, let me give you the wrong way. Let me give you the way that most people fall into the trap. I imagine where I might say, "Sally, great work on the Johnson project," and you might respond, "Well, it was really all about the team, and we came together, and it was a team effort that made it so successful." Contrast that when someone is not reluctant to claim credit for credit due. I'll give you an example from a woman I worked with in Philadelphia who ran into some real problems uh, with her board because when she ran a big event with a much larger nonprofit, she ended up in the local newspaper basically giving all the credit away to the man who was the head of the large nonprofit that she had partnered with. And her board did not like that at all. She thought she was being a generous, wonderful person, um, but her board was quite disappointed with her response. So I had worked with her a bit on that. And uh, in, in the future, what she was able to do when she was asked about that event and you know the, the, the local newspaper article was not the end of it, she was able to say, um, I, it was a great privilege to have the opportunity to work on that project. I learned a lot. I felt that I was able to contribute substantially because of X, Y, and Z, being very specific about either her connections or her skills, and then say, and I also had magnificent support from Joe Blow, who was at, uh, at the other organization, um, who brought a lot to the table as well. So I think that what's, what's helpful about a response like that is that you're not just you know, saying thank you, yes, I, I worked very hard and did a, a good job, but you're, set, you're, you're 
articulating the exact skills of what you brought to the table. So on one hand, that comes across as real information, not just boasting. Um, on the other hand, um, it's, it's a way of claiming your achievements and claiming what you contributed. So the specificity there is really important. In writing the book, what surprised you? What did you learn in the process that you didn't have a, a strong opinion about or firsthand knowledge about before you started writing it? Well, I would say, Bill, that what I learned was how clear the process for addressing behaviors that get in your way can be. And here was the enormous value of working with Marshall Goldsmith. I had so many examples in my experience of working with women leaders for the last 30 years all around the world of behaviors that got in women's ways, of, of you know, specific examples of how these behaviors tripped them up, and specific examples of how those women um, were able to surmount those. But working with Marshall, who's been ranked the world's number one executive coach for nine years in a row, so has extraordinary experience uh, in coaching, what I saw was that there really is a very clear template for changing behaviors that, that you want to change. Kelly, can you give us a summary of that change template I think with an example? I think that'd be very useful for people to hear. Yes, certainly. The change template is very clear in four steps. The first is uh, you may identify with four or six or nine behaviors. Start with one behavior or even one part of a behavior that you can clearly begin to address. Two, enlist, and this is the most important part, enlist other people as allies. Don't try to do it alone. Say you're going to try to be more concise in your presentation. One of the behaviors is, is for women is offering too, too much information, too much background, too much disclosure, too many words. You're going to be, try to be more concise. Before you go into a meeting, say to a couple people, hey, look, I'm really working on getting more concise in my presentation. Could you watch me and tell me how you think I'm doing and give me any tips uh, for the future moving forward? And then, and this is really important, another thing I learned from Marshall, when people do give you feedback, don't give your opinion about their feedback. Uh, don't respond. Don't say, oh, but I could never do that because. Simply say thank you. The other thing after that is to, is to really let go of self-judgment, and this is often very hard, for having developed a behavior uh, that has that has, may have stopped serving you. There, there's a reason every behavior we talk about in How Women Rise is also rooted in a strength. Uh, so you want to let go of judgment and not beat yourself up or you know have a negative dialogue about the fact that if only you'd known this, you know, ten years before, you'd be in a different place than you are now. Um, so that's that's very important. And and remembering that 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 behavior may no longer serve you, probably served a purpose uh, at some time in the past. So that's a very simple template, but the engaging people to help you is really key. Oh, it's tremendous. It helps you develop and grow as you build relationships that are being aware of this new strength of yours. That's exactly right. And you get more visibility and more and can claim more credit because you're making people aware of it as you're doing it. It's a it's a win, 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 win. Another thing I'm going to highlight here, Sally, is that letting go of judgment is so important 
for leaders, both men and women, because when you're leading a small business, when you're leading a mid-sized business and you have people reporting to you, we all make mistakes. And the more that you beat yourself up, the more that you linger, the more that you devote energy to that old behavior, to that unhelpful way of thinking, that unhelpful way of relating with others. So by just releasing that judgment, you're really able to move on and put your energy where it really belongs. That's exactly right. You're stirring up negative energy. You're holding on to negative energy. You are continuing to act on, even if you're in reaction against a behavior from the past. And I'll tell you, it is especially important for people who are in mid-size or small organizations because the effect of the stress you can create on yourself are really felt and magnified in smaller organizations. It's really important to remember that having expectations, even if it's on yourself, of doing everything perfectly, not only creates undue stress for you, it creates stress for everyone around you. I've been doing what I do 30 years. Never have have I heard anyone say, I work for a perfectionistic boss and I love it. So Sally, let's imagine a woman business owner listening to our conversation today, and she's the leader of her firm. There is no political place for her to rise, but there are other ways that she could rise in her industry. There are other ways that she could rise in her community. What is it that she could start with to make her leadership more effective today? I think, Bill, you've hit on something really important, which is that leading your organization and leading it well gives you a platform for being a leader in your industry and, and or sector and in your community as well. So there is always going to be an opportunity uh, to include and ramp up your leadership style. And I think especially for someone who's, who's leading or running a, a, a smaller, smaller scale business, that there are habits that you may have developed that serve you very well in that small business. But again, if you're moving into a bigger, more public role, it's going to be involved with real leadership in your sector or industry. Some of those behaviors or habits may not serve you as well as as they have being in in your small organization. So I think putting yourself out there and sort of testing your own ultimate capacity for exerting leadership in a variety of venues is always going to be of of benefit to you as a leader, but it's also going to be of great benefit to people in your organization. I have worked with many small and medium-sized companies where the leader is somebody who is enormously uh, respected and well-known in the sector or the business community, and it really makes a big difference in terms of the pride people feel in being part of their organization. Let's look at a specific issue. I'm a big believer and supporter of STEM, the the science, technology, engineering, and math focus, especially for women. What is it that a woman CEO has to do uh, to maybe to work at succeeding? Which of the habits might uh, a woman CEO have to succeed at doing in a male-dominated field like engineering or computer science? Well, I would say, you know, the second behavior in the book in, in How Women Rise that we focus on is expecting others to spontaneously notice and reward your contributions. And that behavior really came to my attention very much when I was working with a group of young women engineers out in Silicon Valley who were having real difficulties getting acknowledged for the full range 
of their contributions. And I remember especially one young engineer, Ellen, I, I remember her name, and uh, we worked together for a little while. Uh, she was young, she was very talented, and she, she said to me something that really stuck with me. She said, you know, I think that, that I'm a, a very good engineer, she said, but I think that one of the real unique things I bring to this job is that I'm very good at connecting with people and connecting people with one another. I'm kind of a go-to person. And uh, I'm seen that way in, in my company. She said, and when I, I had a, a new boss come in, I didn't know him very well. Uh, we work in multiple locations, so he didn't see that much what I did. And she said, when I got my first per performance review, he, he said, you know, I think you're a very good engineer, but you need to be more connected and more visible in the organization. You're not doing mm. a particularly good job on that. And she said, she said, for about three weeks, I walked around feeling as if I'd been kicked in the stomach. I thought maybe I'm in the wrong career. Maybe I'm in the wrong company. I'm certainly with the wrong boss. I'm totally unappreciated for what I contribute or for what my potential would be. She said she just took it to heart and felt terrible. It took her a few weeks, and then she realized, well, how would he know? Mm -hmm. I never told him. Uh, he had no way of seeing how I was connecting. Uh, she said I'd never brought it to his attention, and I didn't even really push back in the performance review. So what she decided to do was start once a week sending him a no more than two-line email that just said, you know, dear Jim, here's who I connected with this week, and then four or five or six names of people. And that was it. And she said, I felt like a fool doing that. I felt like he's going to think, why is she wasting my time? She said he came to me about two months later spontaneously and said, thank you for doing that. That's really important because it helps me know who our division is connected with. This is information I need to know. So I think, you know, I, I've worked with a lot of people who are in the STEM field. And it tends to be a field in which people may be even, you know, more reluctant, more hopeful that others will notice their achievements without them having to draw attention to it uh, than in other fields. So I think that's really important. And I'll tell you that since the book came out, one of the things that's been interesting is I've had a lot of men, especially in engineering, physics, physicists. Uh, mathematics, those kinds of fields, who have come up to me and said, you know, I really identify with that behavior of expecting others to notice and reward my contributions because I've never been the type who's been comfortable talking about what I contribute myself. Right. So that affects both men and women. It's a great behavior to look to eradicate in order to rise, whether you're a male or female. That's exactly right. And I think it's, you know, to some extent tied to being rather introverted. And it makes sense that in fields where technical expertise is really required, um, that there would be a correlation with, with that kind of personality type. It's, it's, a, it's a lot different profile than, than a person in sales who has to pick up a phone and make cold calls all the time and is going to have to quickly learn how to, how to never be shy. Sally, what's one thing that you wish that male leaders would keep in mind to cultivate more women in management and leadership positions? Well, I think it is very helpful to have men have a greater awareness of some of the habits that do get in women's ways. And I've had so many men tell me how helpful this book was to them in understanding 
uh, a bit more about what made the women in their organization, not just what made them tick, but what potentially uh, held them back. What I hear from women is, you know, my boss doesn't give me enough direction about what I can do to be more successful uh, in my job. And I think sometimes men hold themselves back from that, and it doesn't do anybody any favors. I'm going to connect that to what we spoke about earlier, which is when women hear feedback, to simply say thank you. Yes. I think that if we could make that loop work, where if people know that to get feedback and to respect someone giving you feedback, knowing that someone giving the feedback might not be skilled and polished and doing it as well as it might be given, but to be able to simply hear it for what it is, sift out the parts that are helpful, discard the parts that aren't, and simply say thank you, it helps encourage more feedback. What I always find and remind myself of is that unsolicited feedback is always in the giver's interest. <laughs> that's correct. You're exactly right. And that's why we tend to, uh, why we tend to dread it. But solicited feedback, which is what uh, is shared in well-run organizations, honest and solicited feedback or structured feedback, where mm-hmm. it's part of a regular uh, assessment system is very important. It's very good information. And, and, and I agree this, this, this model of simply saying thank you and not feeling like you have to take everything to heart necessarily. You get to exert independent judgment, but saying thank you rather than, well, I could never do that, but, or the reason that wouldn't work for me is those responses are basically never helpful. And to your earlier point about being aware of some of these issues, I think is very well taken. I think if more male leaders and managers were aware of the perfection trap, the disease to please, which I love that um, habit type, (laughs) and minimizing, I I think that it would sensitize more male leaders to saying, wait a second, I'm not allowing this employee to contribute as much on my team because she might be minimizing. I'm going to go have a a one-on-one conversation to make sure that that's not the case. You know, Bill, it's so interesting you're saying this. Ever since I wrote The Female Advantage, Women's Ways of Leadership, which was published in 1990, uh, I have been, to some degree, always making the point that it would be helpful for men to be what I and what other women who work with women leaders were writing about. And I think in the past, there's been a certain amount of awkwardness about that. But what I'm finding now, and I think it's partly that the the environment is changing and that organizations, in my observation, are getting much more serious about really bringing women into the strategic decision-making rank. Uh, I find men much more more open to that kind of learning. And, you know, it used to be I'd go to programs and there'd be a man there and he'd say, well, I'm going to get this book for my wife or... I'm buying this for my daughter. And, and now I hear men say, you know, I'm looking forward to reading this book. And I, I think that's, you know, I think that's a really good thing. And, and it shows that we have evolved and we are evolving in a good direction. Well, good leaders look for information regardless of the source and look to cultivate all of the talents and energies and contributions of their team, again, regardless of source or origin. It's, it's just good sense. Yeah. Sally, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? I am ready. So what is a key component of your routine for daily success? Meditation. I try to meditate uh, 15 minutes in the morning, and it adds the ability to be more reflective throughout the day. Just that 15 minutes, it's key. 
In the book, you talk about the importance of getting unstuck. What's your favorite way to get unstuck? My favorite way to get unstuck is to enlist somebody else's point of view. Uh, I have lots of friends. I have a robust network of co colleagues. And when I feel stuck on something, the first thing I think of is, who is a good person to ask this about, uh, to ask about this? And what's a question you might ask to help get yourself unstuck as you contact that person? When I contact them, I would probably say, do you have a minute? I really feel like I may not be seeing part of something that's getting in my way. Uh, can I run the scenario by you quickly and hear what your thoughts are? And if I've chosen the person right, and that's always important because you want somebody who has some experience in what you're talking about and who you know has your own best interest at heart, uh, then I usually get my perspective really widened. Mm -hmm. What's the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? Oh, boy. It <laughs> is stop complaining about how busy I am, how much I have to travel, how exhausted I am, blah, blah, blah. I have decided to drop that. I am so fortunate and privileged. In the work I do, it's not surprising that my schedule is packed and uh, I just tell myself, suck it up. <laughs> <laughs> and what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I have ever received is to think about the ideal colleagues I would like to have in my network and then work to make it a reality. Somebody said that to me about 30 years ago. And I cannot think of my own work or my career without the fantastic colleagues. And that's mostly people who do what I do. Um, you know, whether it's Marshall, whether it's um, a, a, a great human resources expert like Beverly Kay, whether it's been Tom Peters, I've been so privileged in the colleagues that I have had and developed and cultivated. And that has really given me strength. And I think particularly for people who work alone or in a very small, small company, that's, that's key. Well, Sally, I want to thank you and appreciate you for the contributions you've made on my quest for the best. You've talked about your journey from learning from Sister Mary Lawrence all the way to co-authoring um, books with leading uh, thought leaders in your field and sharing some great advice and techniques about using the I voice, about claiming credit for things that you've con um, contributed, and helping both men and women work more effectively together so that we can all make our best contributions at work. How can we find out more about um, the work that you do online and uh, to book you for keynote presentations? Well, certainly that's easy. Uh, my website is sallyhelgeson.com. I've got a contact button there that'll go right through. Or you can email me at sally at sallyhelgeson.com or connect with me on LinkedIn, which is the social media platform where I'm most active. And what parting words would you like to share with listeners? I think that it's important to recognize that for all the chaos and confusion and for some reason evident fear that is in our environment today, we really are in, I think, uh, based on my experience, a kind of golden age in terms of valuing human expertise, insight, 
and contributions in organizations. And I think there's greater and greater openness in well-run companies of every size uh, to what people can contribute to their creativity. So I think that, that, that we really live in an environment where it is possible to shape paths, work, workplace paths that are sustainable, rewarding, and that where we have an opportunity to act on our best talent. Thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you, Bill. It's been a real pleasure. Hi, this is Bill. Before you go, I just want to ask you a quick favor. If you've enjoyed this interview on My Quest for the Best, I'd love it if you'd go to iTunes, look up My Quest for the Best, and subscribe. I want to make sure you don't miss the very next episode we have coming up. We've got a lineup of terrific guests, and I know that if you enjoyed this one, you'll like what you find coming up soon. Also, feel free to give it a comment, a like, because we work hard to put these interviews together, and I'd appreciate making sure that we're reaching you and serving you in the, the best way possible. I look forward to reading your comments and catch you on the next interview. Thanks so much.